Amen. Beautiful, beautiful hymn. I just want to thank Sister Nora for these beautiful flowers. And these flowers beautiful? They're real too, friends. No fake stuff. And she told me she got the, the tropical one since, since she knows I'm from Hawaii. And so I really appreciate that. Uh, very beautiful. Uh, She's been ordering the flowers for the past few weeks. And we just wanted to thank her for that. This time, why don't we bow our heads forward a prayer, shall we? Lord, we thank you so much for your goodness and your grace. And Lord, the message of that song is truly something we can relate with and resonate with. Lord, our hearts are so prone to wander, so prone to leave the God that we love. But tonight, Lord, we pray that you'll take our hearts, take and seal it for thy courts above. We pray, dear God, that as we open your holy word, that your Holy Spirit would speak to us in a personal and intimate way, that you'd stir our hearts with a conviction that we need you, and that you'll give to us courage to make a decision tonight for Jesus. Lord, please remove every distracting spirit from this room, and I pray that you'll give us an attentive mind, that we might pay attention, that we might focus, and that we might be receptive and responsive to your invitation. Please, dear Lord, bless us now as we study. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Tonight, in this message entitled Living to Die and Dying to Live, we're going to learn thank you, Pastor, how to let the past truly be past, to have a fresh start, a clean slate, a brand new beginning at life. And I believe that God is going to do something special. In fact, at the end of this presentation, we will have a special invitation for individuals to make a decision for the Lord Jesus. And so right now, from the very beginning, I want you to be thinking about that. Throughout the presentation, in your heart and mind, just ask God, God, what decision would you have me to make tonight? Whatever it is, give me courage to respond. I invite you to pray that prayer as you listen to the message this evening. Friends, when we study the Bible, the Bible tells us who God is. The written word is a reflection of the living word. And the Bible tells us or gives to us many different views and uh, uh, aspects about the wonderful character of our God. In fact, the very first thing the Bible tells us about God is that our God is a God of beautiful beginnings. Amen? Notice what the Bible says in the book of John, excuse me, Genesis chapter 1, beginning with verse 1, if you turn your, your Bible there with me. This is the very first thing the Bible tells us about God. Genesis chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. We read this before, but I want us to notice again. The Bible says, in the beginning, God did what? He created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Verse 3, and God said, let there be light, and what happened? <clears throat> and there was light. So here we find the first thing the Bible tells us about God is that He's not a God of destruction, but He's a God of creation. He is a God that created light from darkness, order from chaos, and create, He created fullness when there was nothing but a void. 
and he did all these things by his word. He spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. God was not dependent on pre-existing matter when he created the world. His word created something from absolutely nothing, and he is the God of beautiful beginnings. As you read the rest of the chapter, you'll find that everything God made was beautiful. It was perfect. It was glorious. It was a reflection of His beauty, His perfection, and His glory. And everything God made, it was good. Why? Because God is good. And out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So He created with His Word, and that Word that He created was an expression of His heart. And what He saw was good because God is good. Can you say amen? And what God did at creation was a symbol also of what He wants to do in recreation in our own hearts and lives. I want us to notice how the New Testament, talking about the God of creation, applies this to salvation. In 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6, please write it down and notice with me on the screen. For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness. And when did God command light to shine out of darkness? At creation, of course. So this is pointing us back to the God that created all things by His Word. He commanded it, and it happened. And then it says, He hath shine in our what? hearts to give the light. Well, what is that light? It's the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the light of the knowledge. That light represents knowledge, and, and friends, it makes sense because God said with His Word, let there be light, and there was light. In other, in other words, the light came from the very Word of God. And that same word he wants to speak in our own hearts and minds. Why? Because our lives are equally void, chaotic, and full of darkness, just like this planet was before the Spirit of God came and moved upon the waters. And so what God did at creation, he desires to do in recreation, in our own hearts and our lives. And friends, let me tell you that God does not make junk. Amen? He makes beauty when there's nothing but ashes. He makes something perfect when there's imperfection. Notice, in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 11, the Bible says, He hath made everything, what? Beautiful in its time. God is a God that makes beautiful things. He is a God of beautiful beginnings. But then it says, He hath, has also put what in their hearts? It's interesting, friends, that when God created us, the Bible says that He put eternity in their hearts. What does this mean? Listen carefully. Deeply implanted within the nature of man's existence is an eternal space, a space that only can be filled by one who is eternal in nature. The simple way to say it is that there's a God-shaped hole in every human heart. Does that make sense? That's what it means when it says He put eternity in their hearts an eternal space that can only be filled by one who is eternal in nature. And friends, whether we recognize or acknowledge it or not, deep down within us is an inexpressible longing for something more, something lasting and enduring, something fulfilling and satisfying. But many times, unfortunately, we either ignore this longing in our hearts by being busy in the world or we pacify the longing by gratifying carnal lusts with the empty pleasures of sin. But because the pleasures of sin are short-lived and shallow, it drags us back 
to its degrading filth over and over again, and it leaves us addicts and slaves to our own desire for fulfillment. In fact, I love what the famous uh, novelist and scholar and Christian philosopher C.S. Lewis said in describing the longings of humanity. He said these words, C.S. Lewis, if I find in myself, what? Desires with which nothing in this world can satisfy. The only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Do you understand that, friends? If you realize that in your heart, there's a longing, there's a desire for something that nothing in this world can satisfy. The only logical explanation for the existence of that desire is that we must have been made for something more than this world. We were made for another world. That's the reality, friends. God has put eternity in our hearts. We were all created to live for something more than self. We're created to live for something more than just the parties and the pleasures and the pursuit of gratification and stimulation. We were created for something more than just the nine-to-five job of clocking in and clocking out in the daily routine of life. We were created for something more than just the status quo and the ordinary, the typical, and the common. We were created for something more than the expectations of society and family and friends and employers and even ourselves. You see, friends, everything in this world can stimulate us but nothing in this world can truly satisfy us. We were created for something more. And that's why the Bible tells us in Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, it says, Beware lest anyone, what? Cheat you. No one wants to be cheated. And yet, when it comes to spiritual things, we allow the devil to cheat us so many times. The Bible says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the traditions of men, and according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him, talking about Christ, dwells all the what? <clears throat> the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in Him. We're only complete in Christ, friends. That shows without Him, we're incomplete. There's an emptiness, there's a void. There's an eternal space, and no matter how much we try to fill that eternal space with sin and with the pleasures of this world and being successful in this life alone, we're still empty and we're never truly satisfied. The Bible tells us that we're complete only in Christ. And friends, it's difficult for those who have it all to recognize this, but no matter, friends, how, no matter how good you are, we've all made mistakes. We've all made decisions that we wish we could undo. Isn't that right? Oh, I made a lot of decisions I wish I could undo. We've spoken words we wish we could take back, wasted time and missed opportunities and neglected duties and broken promises, and many times the regrets of our past hold us back from moving forward in the future. And many people ask the question, what if things were different? What if? I would have just made that decision, or what if I would have done that differently? What if I would have not said it like that? Or what if, what if? Then it could have been, it would have been, it should have been, but it is not. And many times we wish we could go back to the past to change it, but time will not permit us to go back. What's done is done. And unfortunately, we allow the mistakes of our past 
the circumstances of our present to stop us from moving forward in the bright and glorious future that God has in store for us. We let the past and the present stop us from truly living our lives. And friends, the reality is this, we cannot change the past, but the good news is that we can give it to Jesus. Notice what Jesus does when we give Him our past. In Isaiah 43, verse 18 and 19, do not remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. In other words, God is saying, don't let the past hold you back. We've all made mistakes, friends. We've all have dark past, but don't let it hold you back. Behold, I will do a what kind of thing? A new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. God says, forget about the past. I am the God of not just beautiful beginnings. I am also the God of new beginnings. I can give you a fresh start, a clean slate, a new opportunity. You see, my friends, what is behind you is not as important as what is in front of you. And friends, every time you jump in your vehicle, you're reminded of that because when you get into your car, in front of you, you have a large windshield and a small rearview mirror. And that rearview mirror is small in compared to that windshield. You know why? For the simple reason is that what's behind you isn't as important as what's in front of you. Every saint has a past, but every sinner has a future. Amen? And so we need to move forward. And tonight we're going to find out how we can move forward into the glorious future that God has for us, how we can truly let the past be past. You see, friends, it does not matter where you came from. It does not matter where you are even now. What matters is where you're going from this night on. It doesn't matter how you came to this meeting tonight. What matters is that you came. And I beg you on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ, don't leave here without leaving your, 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 your past at the feet of Jesus Christ at the foot of Calvary's cross. Amen? What does God promise to do with our past? This is perhaps one of my most favorite verses in the Bible. Joel 2.25, it says, God has promised, I will, what is that word right there? Restore to you the what? That the locusts have eaten. Do you know what this verse is saying? You see, one of the most devastating and disheartening things that could ever happen in an agricultural society was to be invaded by a swarm of locusts. Because a swarm of locusts would be able to consume your crop. That which perhaps have taken years of consistent work could be consumed in moments. And for many, recover from such a loss as a swarm of locusts was nearly impossible. And friends, that is a fit description of the lives that we have lived for self and for sin. A life lived for sin and self is a wasted life. It is locusts. The locusts of sin have consumed us. But God says, if we give him our lives, he will restore all the years that the locust eat, has eaten. In other words, he will restore the time and the life that the enemy has taken and stolen from us. He is the God that cleanses that which is filthy. He is the God that restores that which is broken. He mends that which is torn. He, 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 he fixes that which has been destroyed. He is the God that restores the years that the locusts have eaten. Do you need restoration in your life? Have the, have the, has the locusts of sin consumed and wasted many of the years of your life? 
Well, friends, we can't change the past, but we can let God restore it back to us. And I've experienced the reality of this promise. My story is a story of one of wasted years that have been restored by the great God of heaven. It goes like this. I'm going to share with you a short version of my experience. I grew up in a dysfunctional family. Uh, my parents were very young when, when they had me. They were never married. They were separated most of my life. And they loved me, but it seemed like they hated each other. I grew up in a home of dysfunction, and, and my parents, as I mentioned, were separated. And so sometimes I would live with dad, and other times I would live with mom, and it would be back and forth and back and forth. Totally dysfunction, friends. There was an animosity between my parents. And as the only child, I was insecure, not, 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 not sure what to think of it or how to feel about it. And without any spiritual foundation, as a youngster, I started getting into a lot of trouble. My parents never went to church, never took me to church. And as a result of not having the spiritual foundation, by the time I was in fifth grade in elementary school, I was already smoking cigarettes, and I was a compulsive thief. I would break into people's houses when I was fifth grade. Can you imagine that? Look at this face. Looks innocent, doesn't it? But this little face after school would ride his bike, bicycle through the neighborhoods looking for houses where people weren't home so they can break in and steal and, 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 and rob and, and do crazy things. My life was heading down the wrong path. The locust of sin was consuming my ears. And friends, as I got into high school, things only got worse. I went to high school simply to get high. That's why they call it high school. Isn't that right? <laughs> But that was me, friends. I started smoking weed and burning up my brain cells. This is my, 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 my school picture in school doing these things. A slave to the sinful pleasures of this world. I was held captive my, by my lust for getting high and fooling around and just having fun. I was wasting my time, wasting my life with no direction. Did not care about the future. Only cared about being stimulated in the present. And I caused my parents a lot of pain. At this time in my life, in high school, I was living with my mom, and as a single mom, she didn't really know what to do, and she, she tried her best to, 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 to point me in the right direction and to raise me the right way, but, but, but there's only so much she could do as a single mother, but to make a long story short, the change came when I was 16 years old, and I received an invitation, a knock at my door, an invitation to a Bible prophecy seminar. A seminar just like this and I went to those meetings when I received that invitation to those meetings it was like I was being invited to heaven friends that invitation was like an invitation to eternal life and I went to those meetings as a 16 year old many times I came high my mind uh, in the clouds I was drawn to those meetings because I was looking for something something I could not find in the pleasures of sin and in this world and the Holy Spirit was working on my heart awakening within me a desire for truth, a desire for righteousness, a, de a desire to be saved. I continued to go to those meetings, and I realized that if I was going to be saved, if I was going to follow Jesus, that I could not continue to smoke weed and do drugs and, and serve God at the same time. And so I tried to stop uh, smoking weed. I tried to stop hanging around with these friends, but I couldn't do it because, friends, we don't have any power over the temptations of Satan. We are powerless. Human effort is not strong enough to change the heart. And so I would try, but I was trying in my own strength, and I could not do it. I couldn't do it. 
Till finally one night after one of those meetings, the Holy Spirit was calling me, convicting me. I didn't hear an audible voice. It was just the conviction of my need of Christ and my realization that I couldn't do it on my own. And so I, I, I came to the altar. The evangelist made an appeal, an altar call, invited people to come to the, to, the, to the front to give their hearts to Jesus. And I remember it was a battle in my mind. Satan was telling me, well, if you give your heart to Jesus, what are your friends going to think of you? They're going to think you're weak. If you come to Jesus, how are you going to stop smoking weed and doing drugs? You can't do it. Don't be a hypocrite. If you give your life to Jesus, you, you, that means you can't do this and you can't do that and your life is going to be so boring and mundane and ordinary. The devil was whispering all these lies in my ear, but at the same time, God was saying to me, my son, just come as you are. I'll make the change in your life. I'll come to me, Taj, and I will, I will make the difference and, and you'll be happy. You'll, you'll experience a peace and joy you never experienced before. And the conviction was so strong, I just had to respond. And I remember coming to the altar, kneeling down at the front, weeping, crying out to God, saying, God, if you're there, if you're real, if you truly have a better life for me, I need you to take away these habits in my life. Take away the desire for it so that I no longer want it. I need you to do for me what I can't do for myself. I need you to give me the victory and give me a new life. And friends, when I pray that prayer sincerely with all my heart and I loosen my grip upon the things that I wanted to hold on to, God took it away from me. And he set me free instantly by one prayer. He took away the drugs and the, and the desire for these things. And, and for the first time in my life, I experienced what peace really is and joy and satisfaction. I found Jesus. Or let me say Jesus found me. And he came to me just as I was, a broken, messed up druggie. And he made the change in my life. And shortly after those meetings were finished, at the end of those meetings, I was baptized in the Pacific Ocean. There I am getting baptized. I was 16 years old. And friends, let me tell you, when I was baptized, God redeemed me of my past. And what he began to do, he began to restore the years that the locusts had eaten. I started preaching. First time I preached was when I was 16 years old, shortly after I was baptized. And friends, let me tell you, you should have heard that first sermon. It was absolutely horrible. <laughs> it was a terrible sermon. <laughs> you see, growing up in Hawaii, there's all kind of different, you know, many people are like, man, I want to grow up in Hawaii. But let me tell you, growing up in Hawaii, for me, there was so much distractions and so many temptations, and I just totally messed up my mind with drugs. And, 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 and so I was at a disadvantage. That first sermon was terrible because... In Hawaii, we speak a different language. English is my, first la is my second language. My first language, would you like to guess what it is? Broken English. <laughs> In Hawaii, we call it pidgin. We take a paragraph and we, 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 we just say it in one sentence. We take a sentence and we can say it in two words. Two words, say it with our eyebrows. It's just broken or simplified English. And so communication wasn't a strength of mine. And not only that, I was very, I'm, I was very shy, still am shy, introverted, and uh, slow of speech. I, didn't, I wasn't the smartest kid. In fact, going to public high school, I had straight Fs, not standing for fantastic either. 
failing every single class. I would go to school, but I would never go to class. I was, so I was failing, and, and, and so my mind was weak, and, and I didn't have uh, 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 communication abilities. But even though that first sermon wasn't the most eloquent, there was power in it because I was speaking from an, an experience with the Lord Jesus. I didn't know much, but I knew Jesus, and that's what made the difference. Amen? And I went back to my old public high school, and I started passing out Steps to Christ and spiritual books and started witnessing to my friends who I used to get high with and do drugs with, and they would offer me drugs. and say, you know, you know, you want this, and I would say, no, thanks. I found a better high. You got to try it. It's, the, it's, it's Jesus. It's a spiritual high. And they were amazed at what God was doing in my life. I would have Bible studies every lunch recess in that public high school. I would invite the school to come, and, and scores and scores of young people would come to this, to this Bible study that I would lead out in as a 16, 17-year-old. I didn't know much, but I simply shared with that what I knew, and God blessed. And by the way, do you know what my Bible studies were based on? The notes that I took in the Bible Prophecy Seminar. And so all of you who've been taking notes, you are now prepared to give Bible studies. Amen? Because let me tell you, I was 16, 17 years old, and I, that's what I shared. And it blew people away, these youngsters I used to do drugs with. In fact, let me tell you, six of them ended up getting baptized because of those studies. And so all of you who are having those notebooks, you're ready. Amen? Let me tell you, God's ability is our availability. Just make yourself available, and God will bless. Amen? And so that was my high school experience, and, and God began to restore all those burnt brain cells. He began to restore my mind. And I went to my last year of high school, I went to the Christian Academy. The academic level was twice as high. And even though it was a lot harder than that public school I was going to, I was able to graduate from, from at first having straight F's, I was able to graduate with straight A's by the grace of God. God was restoring the years that the locusts had eaten. All that negative influence I had on others in, 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 in tempting people to do drugs and turning people on to bad things, all the, the, that negative influence, God was able to turn it around and He began to restore the years that the locusts had eaten. And God is good, Amen. My past is redeemed, my present makes sense, and my future is secure. Not only that, but my relationships with my parents got a whole lot better. As I mentioned, I grew up in a broken, dysfunctional household, but because of Jesus. When I was about 16 years old, God also got a hold of my mother and began to change her life. And at 16, my parents actually got back together, and they actually got married for the very first time. God was restoring the family dynamic and then three years after they got married, and after 19 years of being the only child, here comes baby brother. <clears throat> same mom, same dad. It was an overwhelming surprise. God was restoring the years that the locusts had eaten because he's the God that restores families and relationships. Can you say amen? And shortly after that, after high school, I went to a two-year Bible college, got trained there in that, in, that Bible, in that Bible college in Arizona from Hawaii, the beautiful white sandy beaches of paradise all the way to the dry, hot, arid desert of Arizona for two years. It was my wilderness experience, but God is good. I made it through that, and then after that, I ended up marrying my high school sweetheart, and we've been married almost 10 years now as a team in ministry. I would have never found her unless I found Jesus first. 
And even if I did meet her before I met Christ, she wouldn't have given me a second thought. <laughs> you see, God was restoring the years that the locusts had eaten. And for the past 10 years, we've been a team traveling all over the place, all over Central Californ- California mostly, and even different places all around the world sharing the good news of Christ about how God can restore the years that the locusts had eaten and, and how God is a God of brand new beginnings, a God that can take someone who's living a life of darkness and turn on the light, living a crooked life and straighten him out for the glory of God. And friends, there's nothing special with me. I, I remind people all the time that, you know, I'm just a beggar trying to share some bread. We're all in this together. But thank the Lord that he has some good bread for us in his holy word. Amen? But who would have thought that God would use a, 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 a druggie, one that messed up his mind, living in a small island there in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and take us all over the place. Friends, we've been to Africa, in, in Nigeria, in Ethiopia, in Tanzania doing meetings. We've been all the way to Asia, in the, in the Philippines, in Japan, and, 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 and uh, Indonesia, and Malaysia, and Thailand. God has taken us all the way to Europe, in Germany, in France, and England, and all over the place conducting seminars like this. It's the most exciting life, living a life of faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? God can restore the years that the locusts had eaten. One of my most favorite stories of doing evangelism and sharing the good news of Christ is what happened in 2007 there in San Francisco. I was just starting out, and I'd been a Christian for eight years up to that point, and we got the chance to do meetings in San Francisco. And during that time, my grandma and my grandpa, they never went to church. I would, I would appeal to them. I would sit down with them and invite them to church, but they would never come. And their story is a story of a broken relationship. Grandpa had done something, and grandma would not forgive him. She was bitter. She was angry. She was resentful. She was hurt. And for many years, they were separated. And in 2007, grandma was living in Hawaii, And grandpa was living in San Francisco, a broken relationship. But because it was close by, grandpa decided that he would come to my meetings. And he came the first night, not because he was interested in the Bible. He just wanted to hear his grandson stand up and talk in front of people. And then he came the second night. And then the third. And then the fourth. He started getting interested in the topics. Then he came the fifth and the sixth and the seventh. He ended up coming every single night. He even came on a night when we didn't even have a meeting. (laughs) showed up by himself. He, forget, he didn't realize that that was the night off. And grandpa was coming alive, and I was so happy. This is the first family member that ever came to my meetings. And I'd preach my heart out every night, and finally it came to the night where we talked about the God of new beginnings, the God that restores the years that the locusts had eaten, the God that fixes family and restores relationships. And I made an invitation for people to come to the front to give their hearts to Jesus in baptism. I wasn't sure if grandpa would respond. And people started coming. And I was praying in my heart, Lord, please let grandpa respond. And friends, it was amazing to see him stand up and walk down the aisle, giving his life to Jesus. There he is. That was the special moment, friends. The moment my grandpa responded and came to the Lord Christ and said, yes, I want to be baptized. I want to have a new beginning, a clean slate, a fresh start. And that grandfather that was there all throughout my life that held me when I was a little baby boy and the grandfather that was there when I graduated from high school, I was now able to hold him in the waters of baptism as he started life over again. And you heard me say this before. I like to say it again. 
He held me when I was born, but I held him when he was born again. That's what Jesus can do, friends. He restores the years that the locust has eat, had eaten. And when he was baptized, he's a new person now. Who would have thought that God would use the third generation to reach the first? But that's what God can do. He wants to use you, friends. Once he changes your life, then he wants to use you as the medium of change in someone else's life. He's done it for me. He can do it for you. When Grandpa was changed, his first goal was to reconcile with Grandma. But two years go by, and Grandma would not have any change. She did not believe that Grandpa was a new person. She would not forgive him. She was a slave to her bitterness and resentment. And no matter how much Grandpa prayed and pleaded and demonstrated love, Grandma would not let go of the past. She kept rubbing it in his face. But Grandpa continued to pray, and I continued to pray too. And then in 2009, God gave me an opportunity to go back to that same church I was converted in 10 years before. I was converted in 1999, and then 10 years later, I was there doing meetings in that same church. And I remember distinctly that when I was there in 1999, sitting right about here, listening to the message as a 16-year-old druggie, the message was so powerful and profound, it was as if God was telling me, Taj, one day you're going to stand where that man is standing. One day, you're going to be doing what he's doing. And 10 years later, I was standing right there doing the exact same thing. God was calling me. We did meetings there in my home church. Hundreds of people came night after night. And finally, it came to the night when we talked about the God of new beginnings, the God that restores relationships. And we made the invitation for people to come to the front to lay their burdens at Jesus' feet and put their lives upon the altar. And friends, over 60 individuals responded to the invitation. It was so beautiful. It was so powerful. And my heart was rejoicing as I saw all these people come. I was rejoicing in my heart until I saw my grandma way in the back just sitting there. She sat at the last pew, the farthest away. And she would not move. You see, during this time, Grandpa, I forgot to mention, Grandpa brought Grandma to the meetings. Amen? But she sat way in the back. But finally, we came to that night, and, and I made the appeal, and people were coming, but my Grandma wasn't moving, and I was praying in my heart, Lord, I'm happy for these, but what about my own flesh and blood? What about my Grandma? Help her, Lord. Give her victory. Give her the ability to respond tonight. And I continued to preach. I continued to appeal. I continued to invite. But she wouldn't move, friends. Her heart was so hard. And so I just continued. And I went on and on and on and on and on. And finally, I saw her stand up. And she walked down the aisle. And she gave her heart to Jesus. And shortly after that, I was able to hold her in the waters of baptism too. And she allowed the Lord Jesus to heal her from her past her resentment, her bitterness, and gave her the ability to forgive and to move on. And because of what God was doing in their life, around this time period was my grandparents' 50th wedding anniversary. And God was healing their relationship. And for their 50th wedding anniversary, guess what they wanted to do? They wanted to renew their vows. And who do you suppose they asked to help with that? <laughs> and I had the privilege of renewing the vows of my own grandparents of my whole family. Why? Because God, He is the God that restores the years that the locusts have eaten. He is the God of brand new beginnings. 
And no matter how messed up and broken our lives, our marriages, our relationships might be, if we give it to Jesus, he's in the business of restoration. Amen? My friend, you can't change your past. What's done is done. But I invite you tonight to give it to Jesus and let him restore the time and the life that has been wasted on sin. To restore the, the, the negative influence you had on others. To restore all of that and to use you to make a glorious difference in someone else's life. Oh, my friends, tonight is that message. We're talking about the God of new beginnings. And so the question as we turn now to the study of God's Word is this. How can you have a new beginning? Well, friends, the Bible makes it clear that it's by being born again. <clears throat> Notice what it says in John chapter 3 and verse 5. Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of what two things? <clears throat> Water and of the Spirit, he what? He cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And so Jesus said, if we want to enter into the kingdom, we have to be born of water and of the Spirit. Now listen carefully, friends. Being born of the Spirit is an inward experience. Say, what kind of experience? And we need to be born of the Spirit every single day. This is a daily inward experience. It's not so much something that can be seen by the eyes of man. It's like the wind. You can't see it, but you can experience the effects of the wind. So too is it being born of the Spirit. It's an inward experience. But being born of the water is the outward expression. It is the what? It's the outward expression of the inward experience. Now listen, the outward expression doesn't make a difference unless you first have the inward experience. And when you truly have the inward experience of being born of the Spirit, it's then that it gives meaning to the outward expression of water baptism. And according to Jesus, both of them are essential in order for us to enter into the kingdom. Not just the personal, private decision of our hearts, but also the outward public demonstration of that decision in front of others, letting people know that we're having a new beginning with Jesus. Both of them are essential for salvation. In fact, notice what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 through 11. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. So here the Bible gives us a list of those who will not be saved. Those who do these things in open rebellion, rebellion against God are not going to inherit the kingdom. And then notice, and such, what is this word right there? Were some of you. What tense is were? <clears throat> that's past tense. In other words, that's what we were like. We have a dark past. Such were some of you, but you were what? Washed. You were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the what? The Spirit of our God. You see, that's what, what it means to be born of the Spirit. It's the inward experience where the Holy Spirit comes into a person's heart and washes us, cleanses us, forgives us, and sanctifies us. That means to make us holy or to change our lives. And that's what God wants to do. Notice this one in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a what kind of creature? A new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are, are become new. So the Bible tells us that when we're in Jesus, 
all things become new. In other words, Christianity and salvation is not a modification or an improvement of the old, but rather it is a death to the old to make way for the new to live. True Christianity is not behavior modification. True Christianity is a complete transformation of character, and it's only by the work of the Holy Spirit. Can you say amen? How do we die to our past? The Bible tells us in Galatians 2.20, I am what? Crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by what? The faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus gave himself for us on the cross, friends. He was crucified there for you and me. And when we accept that, it's like being crucified with Christ. It's letting self and the sinful nature die on the cross with Christ so that the life we live is not a life after the flesh, but it's a life lived by faith in the Spirit of the, uh, of the Son of God. And this is a daily experience. Uh, what kind of experience? The Apostle Paul said, I die daily. It's not something that we decide once and then after that we're always going to be saved and never lose our salvation. No, friends, the Bible doesn't teach once saved, always saved. The Bible teaches that he that shall endure to the end shall be saved. It says you must take up your cross daily and follow Jesus. So just because you take up your cross today doesn't mean tomorrow is secure. It's only secure as you take up that cross day by day to let self die so that Jesus can live his life in us. Can you say amen? Now, to live eternally, we first must die internally. And that's what it means to be born of the Spirit. And then, as a result of this daily experience, the outward expression is to be born of the water. And that, my friends, is baptism. Notice what it says in Romans 6, verse 3 and 4. Know ye not that so many of us as were what? Baptized into Jesus Christ, we're baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in what kind of life? A newness of life. So the Bible tells us here that when we're baptized in the water, it's like being baptized into the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It is an outward expression of the inward experience of accepting the cross and the resurrection. We're letting self die. In other words, when you go under the water, you're not breathing. It's not a good idea to breathe underwater. Isn't that right? So most likely when you go under the water, you are not breathing. And friends, remember when there is no breath, there's death. Your eyes are closed, your hands are folded, and you're not breathing. It's a symbol of death, dying to the old life, the old way of thinking, the old way of living. And then when you come up out of the water, it's like resurrection. It's like new birth. It's like a baby being born into the world, and you take your first breath. It's the outward expression of the inward experience of salvation by the Spirit being put to death, that is the old man, and brought to life in the, in, in the new man, in the spirit. And it's just like a marriage ceremony. When a man and a woman love each other, they get, um, they get married, and normally they have a wedding ceremony. And what is a wedding ceremony? It's an outward expression of an inward experience with one another. 
It's basically calling your friends and family members, letting them know, hey, we're, having a, we're, we're gonna have a, a wedding. I lo- we love each other and we wanna express our love before others, before the world. It's an outward expression of the inward experience, friends. And so too, baptism is just like that. It's letting the world know that you love Jesus. It's like getting married to Christ. It's telling the devil, I'm through with you. I'm not going to fool around with you anymore. I am committed to the Lord Jesus, the one that is committed to me. It's an outward demonstration that you love him. And Jesus said, whoever confesses me before men, him will I confess before my Father. And so this is not, even though it's a personal decision, it's also a public decision as well, just like a wedding. If a man and a woman truly love each other, they're not going to be ashamed of it. They're going to have that wedding to share it with the people that they care about. In fact, notice what it says in Galatians 3.27. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have what? Put on Christ. Just like when, uh, when you get married, the wife takes upon herself the name of her husband. So too, when we're baptized, getting married to Christ, we take upon ourselves his name, and that's how we become a Christian. We're taking his name upon ourselves. But it's not in vain. We're not taking his name in vain because we truly have died to self and are allowing Jesus to live. Now listen, friends, if we get baptized without truly dying to self, then we're taking his name in vain. But when it's an inward experience, then the outward expression is meaningful. Now, how important is baptism? Well, notice Jesus said in Mark 16, 16, whoever believes and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believes not shall be damned. So how important is it, friends? It's a matter of salvation. Jesus here, belief and baptism goes together, and both are necessary in order for salvation to be realized. Both the personal, private decision of the heart as well as the public outward expression of the life. Both are essential. In fact, baptism is so important in the Bible that it's mentioned over 80 times in the New Testament. So important that Jesus himself was baptized in Matthew chapter 3, not because he had a sinful past to repent of. He never sinned not once. He was baptized simply to give us an example for us to follow. And you remember when he was baptized, he began his public ministry. He began to preach after that. He began to testify. And so too, when we follow the example of Jesus, that's like the beginning of our public ministry as witnesses for Christ. And just as Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit in a personal way at baptism, so too when we are baptized, we're anointed with the power of the Holy Spirit. We can receive the joy of knowing that we're pleasing our Father in heaven. It's a beautiful experience that every sincere believer in Jesus must have in order to be saved. In fact, how many of you have been baptized in the past? If so, let me hear you say amen. Amen. So you know exactly what we're talking about tonight. But friends, listen, listen. For every truth that God has, Satan has a what? A counterfeit, and so too with the truth of baptism. There are many different methods of baptism being practiced in our world today. There's only one truth, but Satan has developed many different counterfeits concerning this topic. Different methods of of baptism is baptism by sprinkling, usually sprinkling water upon infants or pouring water on babies. There's also, uh, as I mentioned, baptism by pouring. There's also baptism with rose petals, some people have done, or with oil or with snow. I even heard of a local minister who took some of the people who wanted to be baptized to the local fire station and asked the firemen to hose them down. And after that, pronounced them baptized. (laughs) So many different methods being practiced today. And friends, 
the question we need to ask is, which method is the biblical method? And does it make a difference how one is baptized? It does, friends. Notice what the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4 and 5. Please write it down. It says, There is one body and one spirit, even as you are called into one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, and many baptisms. Is that what it says? How many? Just one. The same way there's only one true Lord and one true faith, there's only one true baptism, friends. Now, that doesn't mean that you can only get baptized once. It's not talking about quantity, but rather it's talking about method of baptism. Only one true method. And so which one is it? Is it sprinkling? Is it pouring? Is it rose petal? Is it fire hose? Which one? Well, friends, the only method of baptism in the Bible is baptism by immersion, going under the water, being totally immersed. In fact, that's what the word baptism means. In the Greek, it's the word baptizo, which simply means to dip, immerse, or plunge underwater. That's how Jesus was baptized. And that's the example that we need to follow. And friends, the reason why this is important, the reason why the method is important is because remember what the, the, what the symbol represents. Going under the water and coming up out of the water represents death, burial in the watery grave, and a resurrection to a brand new life. And that's the true experience of salvation, death to the old and, and life to the new. And sprinkling and pouring and rose petals and fire hose doesn't have the same symbolism, and that's the reason why it's important to God that we die to self and we allow Jesus to live out His life in us. And if that makes sense, would you please say amen? You see, it wasn't until the Council of Ravenna in 1311 A.D. that sprinkling and pouring were officially accepted as equally valid as immersion in the rite of baptism. In other words, the, in the Bible, you will not find sprinkling and pouring infants at all. It actually came in around the 1300s where the medieval church decided to do that. And it was during this time, without any biblical support, that the church began to baptize babies and infants. Never before was this ever practiced. The Bible doesn't teach that. But the church began to do it as a means of controlling people, forcing everyone to be members of the church from birth. It was also introduced by a faulty and non-biblical understanding of sin, they began to teach that innocent babies are born guilty for Adam's sin. It's the false doctrine of original sin. And if they weren't baptized at birth and they died, they would be condemned to hellfire. Well, friends, you can't find that in the Bible. We're born with a sinful nature, but we're not born with the guilt of Adam in us. That's why little innocent children are innocent. In fact, every time God, Jesus talked about the children and innocent and the babes, he always spoke of them in the context of innocence and the kingdom of heaven. He said, if you want to enter into the kingdom, you must become like a little child, a little babe. Yes, that child may have a sinful nature, but they are not guilty of the sin of Adam. And so, the Bible doesn't teach that infants or babies should be baptized, but that they should be dedicated to the Lord. In fact, Jesus was dedicated as an infant. He was brought to the temple, and the priest said a prayer of dedication over him. And really, friends, infant dedication is really parent dedication. It's the parents dedicating themselves to raise their children up in the ways of God. And so if you have a little one, there's no sense of baptizing them. You shouldn't do that. You should dedicate them to the Lord, and really you're dedicating yourself to raise that children in God's ways. Jesus was dedicated as an infant, but he was baptized as an adult when he understood what it meant. And that's the example to follow. And if that makes sense, would you please say amen? <clears throat> So, friends, if, you're, if you were baptized as a baby, 
That doesn't count because that wasn't your decision. That was your parents' decision. But if we're going to be saved, God wants us to make our own personal decision. And that leads us to our next question. How do you know when you're ready for baptism? At what point can a person be baptized? Well, there's no specific age given in the Bible because some children learn faster than others. It really depends on the person's level of understanding. But let me just share with you three uh, uh, steps. How many steps? Three steps to baptism. Or three things we must experience inwardly before the outward expression of the water would, it, it becomes meaningful and significant. Step number one is that we must learn the truth of God's Word. A baby doesn't understand it, therefore shouldn't be baptized. Before you're baptized, it, it, you should learn the truth of God's Word. It's, it's not an emotional decision of the moment, but it's a decision that is, that, 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 that is prepared by studying and learning the essential teachings of the Bible. That doesn't mean you have to know everything because we're going to study the Bible for eternity. But we ought to know the most important things because, as I mentioned, baptism is like marriage. Now, you don't marry someone when you first meet them, right? Right? What happens to those people who get married? They, they meet each other, and a week later they get married. Most of them get divorced, right? You see, you ought to get to know the person before you decide that you're going to be committed to them till death do you part, Right? Same thing, you ought to get to know the Lord Jesus and, and understand some of the teachings of His Word before you get married to Him in baptism. Now, does that mean that you have to know everything? Obviously not, because when you marry someone, those of you who, who, who got married, do you learn some new things about your spouse after you get married? Oh, you learn a lot of things, isn't that right? So too, after we get baptized, we're going to be learning about Christ as well. But we ought to know the most important things. And that's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 and 20. Jesus said to the disciples, go therefore and do what first? Teach all nations, then what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, then what? Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. So notice, Jesus said teach, then baptize, then teach them again, which shows that we must be taught before we're baptized, but we don't have to wait till we know everything because obviously we're going to be taught some more after we're baptized. But we ought to know the most important foundational fundamental teachings of God's Word. Why? Because baptism is an intellectual decision, understanding the principles of the gospel and the doctrines of the Word of God. And if that's clear, would you please say amen? <clears throat> so that's the first step. The second step, we must not just understand those teachings intellectually in our minds, but number two, we have to believe it with all our hearts. And belief, friends, is more than intellectual knowledge. To believe is to believe. It is to internalize the teachings of Christ and the person of Christ into our own experience. And let me illustrate what it means to truly believe in Jesus, to believe in the Lord with all our hearts, not just all our mind, but with all our hearts. Uh, uh, do you know what waterfall this is? <clears throat> this is Niagara Falls. I was just there a few months ago, or actually more like a year ago now, and it's a very amazing waterfall. Got the chance to take these video clips of it. Uh, just fascinating. Well, did you know that uh, there was a man by the name of Charles Blondin? What was his name? <clears throat> he was the first one to walk across a tightrope across Niagara Falls. No net to catch him. If he fell off that tightrope, he would, he, would, he would probably die and drown in the falls. 
But he was the first one in New Guinness Book of World Records to walk across the falls on a tightrope. He did it many times over and over again. And when he did it, great crowds gathered. It was a spectacle. And they were so amazed at what he was doing. Well, one day he's getting ready to walk across the falls when there's a man in the crowd that says, Mr. Blondin, why don't you take someone with you across the falls on your back? He said, wow, you really believe I can do that? Yeah, I believe you can do it. I mean, you did it so many times. I mean, surely you can take someone with you on your back across the falls. You really believe? Yes, I believe. Okay, get on my back and we'll try it. And the man who said he believed quickly disappeared in the crowd. <laughs> he said he believed with his words, but talk is cheap. He, he believed with words, but not actions. He was not willing to get on his back. But a year later, Charles Blondin took Harry Colcord across the falls on his back. And that man that got on his back demonstrated what it really, really means to believe in the Lord with all your heart. And that is to put your life in the hands of God. To believe in the Lord is more than intellectual knowledge. To believe in God is a willingness to get on his back and allow him to carry you across the tightrope of life knowing that he will never fall and knowing that he is able to bring us safely to the other side. You see, in getting, back, getting on, on, on that man's back, it was a full commitment. It, it was basically saying, I'm putting my life in your hands. It's basically saying, I don't have the ability to get up across the falls. I can't do it. There's nothing I can do to help you get across the falls. All I need to do is hold on to you and trust that you have the ability to do it. That's what it means to believe in the Lord, friends. It's saying to God, Lord, I can't make it through life on my own, but I'm trusting that you can. And so all I'm going to do is hold on to you by faith. I'm putting my life, my relationships, my marriage, my children, my finances, my health, my job, my school, I'm putting everything in your hands, and I'm letting you be in control of my life. That's what it means to believe, friends. More than intellectual knowledge is to trust God with your life. How many of you believe in the Lord with all your heart tonight? But friends, what we need to pray is, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Because our belief is weak. But as we continue to put our life in His hands day by day, God shows Himself strong in our behalf, and our belief and our faith become strengthened in the walk with Him. Can you say amen? So that's the second step. Third step, we must repent. And that word repent or repentance means to change your mind. So it goes like this. Number one, believe in your mind. Or excuse me. Number one, learn in your mind. Number two, believe in your heart. Number three, repent with your life. The apostle Peter said to the people, repent and be baptized. So repentance precedes baptism. If you're baptized without repenting, then you weren't really baptized. You just went swimming with the pastor. Because repentance is a prerequisite. And repentance simply means to take a U-turn in life. That means you have to turn. And so I illustrate it like this. You're walking one direction and it's the wrong way. You're, 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 you're doing your own thing. You're following the flesh. You're living for self. And if you keep going this way, you're going to be lost. You're on your way to hell. What do I need to do in order to be saved? I need to repent. So someone say repent. I hear and I heed it and I've just repented. What have I just done? I just changed my way of thinking, my way of living, my way of walking. I'm leaving the past behind. And now I'm going the right direction. I'm taking steps to Christ. I'm walking with Jesus. 
I'm on my way to heaven. I'm reading the Bible, and I'm praying, and going to church, witnessing, and I may stumble and fall along the way because repentance doesn't mean you never fall and make a mistake. I fall, but at least I'm not running back. I fall, but I say, Lord, please forgive me. I messed up, lost my temper. I said something I shouldn't have said. I, I compromised. Please forgive me, God, and God picks us up, dusts us off, forgives us, and gives us strength to keep moving forward. I may stumble again, but as long as I keep getting back up and keep moving forward, I'm on my way to heaven. Can you say amen? So listen, friends, repentance does not mean you'll never fall, but repentance is saying that, Lord, if I fall, I'm not going to get up and turn back. I'm going to get up and go forward. Amen? That's what it means to repent, friends, and that's what, what needs to happen before you're baptized, a willingness to let go of the past, let go of anything that you know that is not according to God's will or God's Word, to surrender your sins and your bad habits to Jesus and to say, Lord, I'm going to walk a, a walk of faith with you. And God is a merciful and patient God. Now, what enables us, listen carefully, what enables us to turn from the sin that we so naturally love and turn to the God that we so naturally despise? What enables us to repent? The Bible tells us in Romans 4, 2, or 2, 4, it says that the goodness of God leads us to repentance. Whose goodness? <clears throat> in other words, your goodness can't do it. All our righteousness, filthy rags. It is only the goodness of God that can enable us to truly repent. And notice, it's not the fear of hell, nor is it the reward of heaven that causes us to repent. It is the goodness of God. And friends, the goodness of God is most clearly demonstrated at the foot of the cross. At, at, the, at Calvary, we, we see the goodness of God demonstrated for us. Do you know why? Because listen, at the cross, you see two things. How many things? You see the two most powerful forces in the universe clashing at the cross. Number one, you see the power of sin because that's what we did, friends. Our sins crucified Jesus. You see the ugliness of sin. You see the pain that sin causes when you look at the cross. But at the same time, you see the power of love, the love of God for a world, a world that did not love Him. And as you see the power of sin and the power of love clashing at the cross, you know what you see? You see love conquering sin. It does it there, he does it there at the cross, but when we accept it in our hearts, Jesus conquers, his love conquers sin in our own lives. And so it looks like this, friends. Remember, I, I, if I'm walking this way, I'm going the wrong way. I'm taking steps to, to, to hell. I'm rebelling and sinning against God. And then when I look at the cross, I see sin for what it really is. I see that it's so ugly and so gory and so terrible and hideous. It's so painful because it puts the creator on the cross. And when I see sin for what it is and I see how ugly it is, I just want to turn from it. I want to repent. Oh, it's so terrible. I don't want it. And then at the same time, you see at the cross the beauty of God. His love, and you're drawn by, wow, you're so amazing, God. How could you love me? After all I've done, I've left you hanging on the cross to do what I wanted to do. I left you hanging there, and yet you still love me. And you're drawn to that cross. You're drawn away from sin, and that's the reason why we must be broken at Calvary every single day because every day the flesh wants to live. 
Every day the old man wants to resurrect back in your life. And that's why every day we must see the goodness of God at the cross that calls us to repent, to turn from sin, and to turn to Him. And that's what the Bible teaches. And how many of you want to experience that more deeply in your life? Amen. And so we find three steps before baptism. Step number one, to learn in your mind. Receive the instructions concerning the essential teachings of the Bible. Number two, believe in your heart, which means more than intellectual knowledge. It means to trust Jesus with your life, to put your life in His hands. And then number three, repent. Have a genuine sorrow for sin. Be willing to turn from that sin. And once you've experienced these three things, that's what it means to be born of the Spirit, friends, because the Spirit leads us to an understanding of truth. The Spirit gives us faith, and the Spirit gives us the power to repent. That's being born of the Spirit. And then, as a result, we're going to be born of the water. We take the plunge. We step into that watery grave, that fountain, and we're baptized outwardly. And, and that makes the water significant because of what the Spirit has done in our lives. Now, we don't put Clorox in the water to cleanse people. It's the Spirit that does the cleansing. Amen? The water is just a symbol. And if that's clear, would you please say amen? <clears throat> now, should a person ever be rebaptized? If so, when and under what circumstances? Well, a few different reasons. Here's a few of them. A person should be rebaptized when their previous baptism was different from what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches in baptism by immersion when a person understands. And so if you're baptized by pouring or sprinkling or rose petals or fire hose, that's not what the Bible teaches. Therefore, you ought to follow the example of Jesus and be baptized by immersion. Another reason, if you were baptized as an infant, that wasn't your decision. It doesn't count, friends. That was your parents' decision. God wants you to make your own decision when you can understand what it means. And so if you're baptized as an infant, God is calling you to be baptized, a true baptism after your own, uh, with your own decision. Another reason people get rebaptized is if you didn't know what you were doing when you were baptized the first time. Maybe it was by immersion, and maybe you, uh, um, it was the biblical way, but you didn't have a full understanding. Maybe it was a decision of the moment, and the pastor made the call, and, and that very night you were baptized, and you did not receive instruction. You didn't understand what it meant. Well, once you understand what it means, the significance of it, it's then that we walk into those waters. Or if you're coming back to Christ, maybe you backslid. You're baptized in the past. You're walking with the Lord, but... Your commitment cooled down and you got tired and you got distracted and you went astray and you lived your own life for yourself publicly before others. And now you feel the tug at your heart, the Spirit convicting you, it's time to come home. You've been eating the pig's food of the sins of this world and now you come to yourself like the prodigal son recognizing, wow, why am I eating pig's food when my father has bread for me at his table? And then you come back home like the prodigal son did. That doesn't mean that you're baptized every time you sin, friends. Otherwise, you'd be getting baptized all the time. Now, communion and foot washing is like a mini baptism. Are you with me? And so some of you who've been baptized in the past and you've fallen away, uh, maybe you don't need to be rebaptized. You Maybe you just have to have some foot washing or communion. It's a mini baptism. But if you've openly and publicly went away from God for, for many years perhaps and, and now you want to come back home like the prodigal son, uh, rebaptism is absolutely, absolutely essential. It's beautiful, friends. And there's room enough for the fa at the Father's table for you. 
no matter how messed up, you, you, how far you've gone astray, and how dirty you've become, the blood of Jesus is the Clorox that cleanses every stain of sin upon the garment of your life. And he wants you to come back to be washed in his blood once again. Amen? The last reason why people get rebaptized is if you've learned new truth. These are individuals who've been baptized by immersion in the past with an understanding of it, but they didn't have the full understanding of truth or the essential teachings, and they've come to a deeper understanding of truth. In fact, this is the biblical precedent found in the book of Acts, chapter 19, verses 2 through 5. Please write it down. Acts 19, verse 2 to 5, it says, He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as what? Heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. So here the Apostle Paul came upon a group of believers who did not hear something very important according to truth, a, a principle of the Christian faith. They didn't, they didn't hear it before. Then he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? So they said, Into what? John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, what did they hear? They heard new truth, not something minor, but something of major significance and importance. About the Holy Spirit. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so, they, these were individuals who were baptized by John. And friends, was John's baptism, was that a legitimate baptism, yes or no? Of course it was. That's how Jesus was baptized. It was by immersion. So they were baptized once, and they never fell away. They were walking with the Lord the, according to the knowledge they had. But when Paul, the apostle, enlightened them on some new truth, truth that was significant, truth that was big, the Bible says they were baptized. We can easily say that they were rebaptized, friends, into the new truth that they had understood and accepted upon learning it by the Apostle Paul. And so, the last reason why sometimes people get rebaptized is if they learn new truth. These are sincere believers following all they know to be true. And upon learning new truth, something that is dramatic and adds a new, new dimension to the Christian walk, perhaps a new revelation of truth that affects their worship and their obedience to God. They feel convicted by the Spirit to get rebaptized into that new truth. And friends, I've met hundreds of people like this who have come to my, this seminar. Beautiful Christians from, from other churches following Jesus the best they know, but as they have consistently attended a seminar like this, the Holy Spirit has led them to a deeper understanding of truth. And many have come to realize that unknowingly they've been breaking God's fourth commandment. And they see that the law of God and the Sabbath is, is not a minor but a major point of truth. They see that it's a special sign between them and the Lord a, of a special relationship, and they sense God calling them to walk into this new truth and to seal their commitment in rebaptism. And friends, if that's you, you have a biblical precedent for making that decision. And don't hesitate, friends. It's not for me or for a church. It's for the Lord Jesus. And you're not denying your past experience. You're simply saying, I've been brought into a larger body of truth, and I'm so thankful for it. I want to walk in it. I want to believe it. I want to follow it, and I want to seal it with a rebaptism. And friends, if that's you, make the decision with all your heart. And what happens when you're baptized is this. Every sin is washed away. Amen? Forgiven of all your sins. Number two, the Spirit ordains us with special power to do ministry. 
And number three, we're adopted into God's family, becoming a part of His church, a body of believers, uh, commandment-keeping, faith-walking, spirit-filled Christians around the world, a family of faith. And friends, it's a wonderful and a sweet fellowship being a part of the family of God. Can you say amen? I'll never forget Jess and Sonia. They came to my meetings. They were living together, but they were not married. And they came and they heard the truth and the gospel, and they realized that, wow, we're living in, uh, in sin. We're not married, and yet we're living together. And, and so at the end of the meetings, they wanted to follow Jesus together. And so what happened was this. We, uh, we, we officiated their wedding on the last Sabbath of the meetings. And right after, they exchanged their vows to one another and got married. They then, they then got into their baptism garments, and they exchanged their vows to Jesus together as they were baptized, married and baptized at the same time. It was wonderful. You look at the joy on their face. Look at that. Look at the happiness. That's what Jesus does. Beautiful. You know I had to get into that myself. <laughs> it was wonderful, friends. And so as we get ready to close tonight, God asks you this evening, do you need a new beginning? Do you need a new beginning? Tonight, we're going to allow you to make a decision for Jesus. Maybe you've never understood the importance or meaning of baptism before. Or maybe you've just never had the opportunity to be baptized by immersion like Jesus was. Or maybe you were, but you turned away and you backslid and you want to come home. Or maybe you've learned new truth and you want to be rebaptized into that new truth. Tonight, baptism does not mean that you're perfect, but it means that you're committed. You may stumble and fall along the way, but God will pick you up. It's not a graduation. It's a new beginning. And so Jesus is not asking, are you perfect? He's asking if you're committed. Amen.